0: Just quick note up front folks. So, you know, TMK took a little bit of time off recording. Not not by our choice necessarily, but you know, we had to throw in the towel um you know the the last week and a half or so from recording and since that has happened, obviously there's been a lot of developments um and atrocities. I mean, just truly like like peer, like peer dread uh you know we're we're watching genocide unfold right now in Palestine um on the Gaza Strip like you know truly awful things occurring um and and it's a look you know I think TMK's stance on uh the you know on Israel and Palestine is quite clear you know, go back, listen to the episode that we did with Anthony Lowenstein on the Palestine Laboratory if you're unsure where we stand on things, um, that, that episode that interview we did is more relevant now than ever before, really looking at the, the ways in which Israel has battle-tested occupation sold those tactics and technologies to anybody and everybody around the world who wants it um, and, and right now we are witnessing them unleashing that arsenal that they have developed and tested on Palestine for decades now. Um, I, I just want to acknowledge, like we we are fully aware of what's going on. We're paying very close attention to it, and we are horrified by it. Um, and it is also something that demands a a full episode, much more careful attention. Um, there, you know, there's a lot of places you can go to get really immediate reactions and reporting on what's going on Um, but we don't feel like we're the place to do that immediate reactions or reporting what we see on our twitter feeds for example you know instead we want to really sit back uh Talk to people who know what they're, what they're, what they, you know, will know what they're talking about. Do something in depth in the way that we do on TMK. And so we've got some stuff in the works, some stuff planned to really give this the attention and expertise that it demands. And so, um, again, you know, just that's a little statement from TMK in case you are, you know, listening to the episode and wondering. Why aren't we talking about the most important thing happening in the world right now? Um, and and that that is why we are we are talking about it, paying attention to it um, amongst ourselves. But we will, you know, release something more in depth, more focused, more considered uh, in the in the near future. So I think with that, we'll we'll get on to our our regularly scheduled episode. Hello friends and enemies. It's episode 290 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy as always. And we we are very excited, as as always, as well, to be joined by Dear friend of the show, Paris Marks, hot off of the Luddite Tribunal where, you know, Paris and Ed really got their hands dirty doing praxis against the obnoxious machinery harmful to commonality. Uh, <laughs> Paris, thanks for, thanks for coming on TMK again.
1: Absolutely. It's always a pleasure to join you.
0: It is it's always so much fun to to talk and and really especially for this ex- uh, for 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 this excuse to have you on now um you know so last week, Brian. Merchant organized a Luddite tribunal. So listeners at the show who heard our interview with Brian might might remember near the end we were, you know, promoting, you know, he's got his book torque uh, for for Blood in the Machine. And as part of that Brian organized at the Star Bar in Brooklyn um, a Luddite Tribunal with a an all star lineup of folks, including Ed. You know, Jeremy and I couldn't make it um, due to the tyranny of distance, but uh, <laughs> but we had Ed there, Paris, you were there, um, Alex Press, Molly Crabapple, like truly this amazing lineup of 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 contemporary Luddites, generals in Ludd's army. Um, and I, I've, I've, I've heard a little bit from people at the show, obviously added, uh, told us about it. I seen some, I saw some videos that you were posting Paris, but I, I feel like, I need the full recap. I need the rundown. If anything, just to, to sate my jealousy of not being able to be there and really get my hands on Enoch's hammer and, and lay, lay waste to some, uh, digital devices.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I said to Brian, we need to take it on the road, you know, uh, (laughs) take, take the Luddite tribunal to, to more cities. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a great laugh. Like I, you know, anyone who listens to my show knows that Brian is a regular guest um, on Tech Won't Save Us. And we had never actually met in person. Um, and I am located in Montreal. So when I found out he was going to be doing the book tour, um, I was like, yeah, I'll come down to Boston. Like, we can hang out. It'll be a laugh. He was like, yeah, let's do that. Um, and then a couple weeks later, he was like, hey, how about we like... Do an event in New York instead, and we like have a Luddite tribunal and we smash some technology and invite some other Luddites. I was like, "Yeah, I'm totally down for that. I will totally come to New York and participate in this uh, Luddite tribunal." Um, so that was kind of how it came about. Like, it was very much Brian's idea. Like, I thought it was. A fantastic idea for a book launch event and i know that his publicists were also very happy with it um and like had never really experienced something like that with um you know, uh, an author like putting that kind of an event together for their book launch, um, and and I will say, you know, there seemed to be quite a lot of interest in it. Um, one of the waitresses at the bar said that she had never seen it as packed as it was. Um, you know, there was a bunch of people standing in the back, uh, you know, because there were not enough chairs for everybody. So. Yeah, you know, people people are into the Luddites, people are into smashing technology, and it was a beautiful thing to see.
0: And, and I, I definitely know, um, because people in the TMK Discord were talking about meeting up there, so I know some TMK yeah, listeners were there for sure. Um, I'm sure some tech won't save us listeners were there. There's a heavy crossover between those two groups of, of people. I mean, just such a fucking inventive idea. I love it so much. When my book comes out, um, in, in a, you know, next fall. Um, I am. I am inspired. I'm going to definitely hold a, a Luddite tribunal. I think as well, especially because you know. So my my next book is titled "The Mechanic and the Luddite." So you know, I, I gotta hold a Luddite tribunal. Um, I'm I'm inspired, and and I, I love the idea of taking it on the road. There there's people all around the world. They they love the Luddites. They yearn for it. They want Luddism, and um, I. I yeah, I, I'm one, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that, like, uh, Brian's publisher uh, would be down with this because it's such they a, like, there. a f- they were there. That's amazing because it's like such an affronting
2: thing to I think they be took like. The most videos out of everyone there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that rocks. And they had a laugh
1: too. Like they were in the corner, you know, all sat down. Yeah, they were into it. That yeah, rocks so
0: much because I would <laughs> I would definitely think that like a, a more squeamish publisher would be a little like this is an unauthorized event. We don't want you know our name attached to something so so radical and violent as smashing technology but hell yeah that's that and i think it's the same um uh brian and and malcolm harris share the same publisher so hopefully there's a, a a nice little streak of radicalness over there that they that they found
1: yeah, God yeah they, you know, they're more than welcome to buy my next book if they want
0: to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Absolutely. I'll be shopping around the, uh, the, the, uh, insurance book when I'm ready to write that, maybe. <laughs> um, that, that rocks so much. Uh, I, I, yeah, that, that, that people were there and forced. So I don't know. Walk us through the event, right? Like, you know, who was there? What was going on? Um, I, I want to, I want, I want to feel like I was, I was, truly at the luddite tribunal so um ed paris one of you kind of walk us through how the event was organized and everything
1: yeah so um you know there obviously ed was there uh i was there brian merchant uh was there um Alex Press, of course, who does fantastic um, labor journalism at Jacobin magazine, um, and Molly Crabapple, of course, who has been um, leading kind of the charge on um, you know generative AI and like opposing that in the context of an illustrator um, for. You know, I guess the past number of months for the past year. Uh, I think her open letter came out somewhere between January and, and March. So you know that has kind of been going on for a while. So this was like our kind of panel of Luddites to look at these technologies. Um, a fun, like a fun little little factoid. Um, Brian had ordered a sledgehammer delivered to him in California, which of course is on the other side of the country from uh, where we were holding the event. Uh, and so he realized that it was probably not going to work for him to take the sledgehammer on the plane (laughs) um, even in his checked baggage so um, the day of the event he had not figured out uh, what was happening with the sledgehammer and where we were going to get a sledgehammer so he I I met him for lunch and he had um, to go do interviews with NPR and, and somebody else so like he couldn't run around and I was like listen don't worry about it I will find us a sledgehammer um, and, and like, we'll be good to go. So I had to go, like, go around to a few hardware stores, like in Brooklyn, trying to find a sledgehammer. And finally I found one, um, you know, it was a nice, like, uh, I had like an eight pound head on it. Uh, I had a nice, like black and and yellow, uh, what shaft handle, whatever the, the fuck you want to call those things. Um, and yeah, it, it worked perfectly. And like, so when we were at the event, you know, we were all kind of lined up on stage, the five of us. Brian, of course, was sitting in the middle. And the whole time he was like doing his shtick and like introducing um, the program and, and you know, kind of uh, presiding over the tribunal, he like was leaning on. Uh, the sledgehammer the whole time and I was like oh yes this is this is King Lud presiding over his tribunal uh, you know with his <laughs> with his sledgehammer in hand it was it was fantastic it really was that's
0: so good i love that you had to that you were the runner going to get (laughs) like having to find a sledgehammer um a a strange item to have to find in new york city i'm sure
1: (laughs) yeah and, and then imagine okay so i go to find a sledgehammer then like i have to walk a bit in the streets with this sledgehammer that's not as terrible i guess but like I'm going down the elevator in or well, I'm going into the hotel first. And like, I totally get a look from like the people at the reception, (laughs) like, why is this person bringing a hammer into the hotel? And then when I was like leaving to go to the event, I was in the elevator. And there was this like older couple uh, who was already in the elevator as I was going down. And the woman was like, can I ask why you have a sledgehammer? <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, uh, we're doing an event uh, where we're smashing technology. She was like, oh, okay. As long as you're not smashing skulls. I was like, no, I'm not smashing skulls.
2: <laughs> just in case, This <laughs> no, just thought I would ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was like, then no, have we're not- to stop you. <laughs> right. It's
0: <yeah.
1: laughs> like, no, not that, not that. Uh, everything's okay. Um, but yeah, you know, it was an adventure. I was, I was, you know, I was hoping to have time to, like, go around to some electronic shops as well and see if I could find some more tech for us to smash, but I just did not really have the time. Uh, like, ahead of time, I was looking at some stuff on eBay, but I, again, like, I didn't look far enough in advance and it wouldn't have, like, made it to us, um, like, with the shipping kind of timelines that were on the... Um, the like listings or whatever. Um, so, so if we do another one, like I'll be a bit more proactive on that, but you know, I was looking at like old Google glasses. Um, what, what else was I looking at? Um, Oh, a broken set of those like meta Ray-Bans. Cause I was like, I can't buy an actual pair. They'd be too expensive, but like a broken <laughs> pair for 50 bucks. Like, yeah, we can get that. But unfortunately I didn't get it. Um, so yeah, there were, <laughs> things that like i would have liked to have for us to smash but you know that's it in the end we smashed uh what was it a printer um a fitbit. laptop what was it Ed? a fitbit oh yeah fitbit what was the thing that you smashed uh, an amazon ring camera right ring camera yeah. um molly tore up some generative art um, and Ed <laughs> tore up a uh, someone. Someone from the audience like brought up a little Axie Infinity like poster thing to get us to comment <laughs> on that, and Ed tore that up. Um, yeah, one and of there our one Discord
2: guy- members did that. If, oh,
1: if really? You, okay, yeah. cool, cool.
2: Uh, shout out to the Discord
1: member who did that. Um, and then there was um, there was a guy from the audience. I, I don't know what it was that he actually smashed. Um, it, was, um,
2: it was a thing that they used in the universities to try to like put surveillance on for students, for uh, the, uh, postdoc students and grad students, I believe.
0: Oh, one of gotcha. the desk sensors. Yes. So, yeah. I remember this. Uh, like Corey doctor had a, a really nice, um, Luddite infused uh, thread about this a while ago, but yeah, as a desk sensor that universities were using to monitor um, when people were in the office uh, as, a, as like a workplace surveillance technology. It was funny because
2: this guy, I actually corresponded with when he was at another university where they were doing that also and he was still organizing against it and trying to stop them from doing it so shout out to david because he's been um he's been against this shit for a long time years i sent him a
1: video uh of him smashing the the thing um afterwards so
2: yeah yeah.
0: That was good. so. All right. So a great lineup of of technologies. I um I did see the videos. You know, Paris, you have some of them on your Twitter um, that people can find. Some great videos of everybody smashing. But so, how did the tribunal work? Um, how did how did you put each technology on trial and decide its fate?
1: Yeah. So I guess. Um you know before we got into like the judging of the technologies we kind of went through like you know Brian wanted to like introduce us and stuff like that um so each of us like we kind of went down the line and talked about kind of the work that we've been doing um like Molly talked about uh the stuff that she'd been doing on generative AI um you know Ed talked about some of the work that he's been doing recently including on you know kind of wanting to abolish venture capital and that sort of stuff um Alex talked about of course uh you know the labor reporting that she's been doing and in particular the writer and actor strikes um, and I just talk generally about you know why tech won't save us because uh, that's my shtick these days <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and Brian of course talked about his book and like what went out of that and, and personally I felt that Brian like didn't give himself enough credit you know he talked about how he wrote this book and blah 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 so I kind of like took part of my time to also boost brian because that's what i like to do um and talk about how he's actually even better than he made out uh made himself out to be it's
0: hard to talk about yourself you know it's hard (laughs) to talk yourself up you got it's good to have friends who will do it for you
1: Totally, right. and we do it to one another all the time. So you know, um, but yeah, and so then once that was over, then we got into like the tribunal section where we kind of went through these technologies one by one. Um, you know, kind of discussed the downsides of them and everything that that um, you know, like the consequences of these various technologies. Every now and then, I kind of tried to jump in as a bit of like a devil's advocate, um, and and kind of I didn't want it all to be negative. I wanted to kind of you know have some fun <laughs> with it. Um, so yeah, and and then, you know, after we had kind of, uh, cast a verdict on the technology and asked the audience what they felt, um, we smashed it because that's what everyone wanted us to do. Ultimately, <laughs> nothing got saved. Everything had to get smashed. Um, and so, yeah, like it, it, it was great fun. Like the audience was super into it. Um, like you know, we're down for our critiques and also kind of like got a laugh at you know the smashing of the tech and like we're super into all of that kind of stuff. And and I think it's just like you know, if you think like five years ago, would you have been able to like? Yeah, I don't know, maybe you would have been able to, but it would have seemed much um, less thinkable to like fill a bar with what, probably 80 to hundred people where you have this panel of tech critics and Luddites beating up a bunch of technology with a sledgehammer. Um, also causing a bit of damage to the bar's stage in the process. <laughs> we, did uh, fuck up
2: we did fuck it up a little. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, but it's like I, I don't know. I think I think it does show you that clearly these conversations are moving along and moving like in the right direction. Um, and you know, hopefully, like at one Luddite tribunal is not going to change the world, but but hopefully, like it suggests that. You know, there's a real kind of shift occurring in the way that people think about um, technology. Uh, yeah, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I feel like. I'm kind of shocked it didn't happen this time. But I definitely feel like if, if that similar event had been run, you know, like five years ago or especially like pre-2016, you know, when the tech lash really started popping off and people were like, realized that you could be critical about technology, you know, like if this event had happened like pre-2016, there would definitely have been like a New York Times Styles Magazine article about like these insane Luddites smash technology. Now you know it'd be like uh, in a bar in Brooklyn technology is on the is on trial <laughs> you know that would, be the, 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 <laughs> that would be the the new york times uh article and then it would be like some you know op-ed or something about like the uh the, the the weird revival of luddism right but instead what you have is like that new york times article about like you know the teenagers who are luddites and you know yeah. rejecting i brought modern, them up you know the they got thing. Th- yeah, you got your Luddites uh uh you know, little Luddites uh, uh human interest piece. You know, oh, these these quaint teenagers are rejecting technology and like, yeah, I don't know, like it, it's definitely a um the 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 times are shifting. I do feel like perspectives are shifting where one you would have a bar Allow that to happen. A publisher allow it to happen as part of a book tour. Um, and then you would have it like the bar be completely packed out and, uh, no one is writing a, uh, <laughs> like a, a, a frenzied, um, alarmist op-ed uh, about it in the New York Times.
1: God, well, I right. should say, um, there was a reporter there from the New Yorker. So <laughs> we'll see if anything gets published about it, if it, if it gets any press. Um, it would be a perfect and, and talk their of the be.
0: town article, for sure, yeah. like in the New
2: Yorker. What do you think, Ed? How did you find it? I mean, I loved it. I loved it. I loved <laughs> how excited people were when we talked about tech, uh, when we talked about the politics of tech, about what the Luddites also. It was a great chance. You know, it was really it was really nice awesome to hear a bunch of people cheer and shout that out but also hear one another and um you know maybe feel like there's things that they could do smash some tech themselves you know organize little groups that smash their own ring cameras a little bit more successfully than i did because that motherfucker was a lot more durable than other ring cameras i've smashed let me tell you that that one (laughs) only the back popped out and i was wondering if part of that was because it was standing up but um you know i think it was i think it's good and it's always good to you know have these sort of events in person right because you know of how i think affirmative they are and because it's a chance to just talk with other people hear other people believe and think and grapple with the same things that you might be thinking about right and i think that was like the thing i really was the most excited about to see at the event and of course it was really fun just like hanging out with a bunch of. Other luddites I really love. A Ludd- lot, uh, you know. First time I met you and uh, Brian, um, in in the flesh, and that was really nice. Um, it's fun to like have audience members bring up some things. David bring up the fucking e waste uh, surveillance system and talk a bit about why he likes luddism, and I think that was also really nice as well. The music selection was also really funny because they kept putting on sh- songs like "Hit Me with Your Best Shot." And- <laughs> <laughs> and, and That's court, um, from, uh, from papa roach and
0: was there any limp biscuit
2: i don't know i'm gonna be real with you i don't know as much rock but i know that there was um there was a, another classic rock song that really just hammered home the idea of like hitting something you know like smashing something
0: if Break Stuff by Limp Biscuit wasn't on the soundtrack, then it was an incomplete soundtrack. I'm sorry, you know, I gotta say this as the resident new metal defender. <laughs> right,
3: right. <laughs> You're not I, I cannot okay. remember.
1: I the only one that sti- <laughs> the only one that sticks in my head is uh hit me with your best shot, uh from from the soundtrack of of the evening, unfortunately. Um yeah, and we don't have a full recording to know for sure what was in there.
0: Oh yeah. Well I I I absolutely love it. I'm so glad it happened. Um it's such a great uh, uh I and, and what you said, Ed, as well. Like it's a real co- it's a community builder. You know, Th- these are community building events. Cause obviously, you know, we're not gonna smash everything. Uh it's symbolic, but it is about like you know, uh like fit like literally not going to smash every ring camera because there's too many of them. We have to do it at an industrial scale. Um a sledgehammer won't do it, but it's symbolic. Uh it, it builds community. And and I will say as well that like while y'all were at the Luddite tribunal, or rather a, a, you know, a few days before your Luddite tribunal, you know, I was on strike Um, at Monash University, our union went on strike for, um, we did a a 48-hour strike starting on, you know, uh, Monday at noon and ending on Wednesday at noon. So, you know, effectively a three-day strike, but over 48 hours. Um, And, you know, because we're, in, in hard, you know, our unions in hard negotiation with the, uh, university council, which is a bunch of, you know, the university council is essentially a corporate board of governance. Um, but it gets the, uh, the nice reputation laundering of being a university because it's like, you know, the, um, a, a, an executive from, you know, one of, from Kohl's, one of our, uh, grocery store duopolies in, in, Australia is on the council. A fossil fuel executive is on the university council. You know, it is another university board of governance or or corporate board of governance, but you know, it's these people get to put it on their CV that they're doing public service by serving on a, a university's council. Anyways, our union is in hard negotiation with them because everything is run by essentially the same McKinsey management consultancies that, you know, every corporation, every Every university, they're all run according to the same exact strategy. Um, uh, and so we were on strike. And as part of the strike, uh, they organized uh, a teach-in uh, for one, one of the days. And so you know, uh, I was out there as part of the teach-in um, giving a little lecture on Luddism and the history of rebellion and labor militancy and uh people were loving it they were eating it up you know it was a lot of it was very new to them this kind of like this true history of luddism you know very much kind of drawing a lot from brian merchant's you know research and historical retelling of it as well and people were eating it up i had you know i had so many people come up to me after the teach-in you know we i it was a uh, a, a kind of public lecture in the in one of the university squares. So anybody, um, you know, union members on strike at the picket line were there, but also students walking by and in solidarity with the union, kind of sat in and listened. and And I had so many people come up to me after the teaching to express how interesting they thought it was, how much they loved it, and how um, they, you know, they didn't know. This this history of Luddism, but it's completely you know it may it resonates with them. It makes complete and total sense with them, and they're like, if that's what Luddism is, then I'm a Luddite, you know. Um, and so I, I and that's that is the case always, right? Like you know, we were talking to Brian about this when we were interviewing him for the book that like anytime. People hear about, or read about, or see about Luddism, and it's true. Like it's true history, it's true politics, it's true ideals. Um, people always are like, "Well, damn, I didn't know that's what it meant. I guess that's me. <laughs> you know, I see, I see myself in that for real." Um, and so. You know, I was doing a teaching about Luddism. Y'all were smashing technologies at a luddite tribunal. Like these are the things that I think really uh, build communities around this idea, and, and and show that it's like it's not only something you know weird. It's not something shameful. Uh, it's not something backwards. It is like you know, it, it is it is the future. Luddism is the future, and more and more people. Uh, it takes it takes. So little to convince people of the ideals of Luddism Once, once it's just clearly explained to them,
1: I love that. Um, that must have been so fun to give and like to have those conversations with like your colleagues and and the people around. Um, it, it's not on Luddism, but I've been giving presentations recently on like AI um, because of you know all the generative AI hype and all that kind of stuff that's going on right now. Um, and like a lot of that has been kind of you know, going back and looking at the history of AI and, like, how that stuff has progressed and, like, you know, Weizenbaum, Joseph Weizenbaum and his work is, like, a big piece of, you know, that kind of presentation and kind of drawing that out for people. Um, and I've gotten, like, so many positive comments from people who, you know, are, are seeing the recent kind of AI hype cycle around ChatGPT and generative AI and all those sorts of things and being, like, I never, like, realized that it was part of this wider history or that, you know, there were chatbots back in the 60s, even though they were obviously much more rudimentary, um, and that these kind of critiques of these technologies, of AI in particular, have been around for such a long period of time. And I feel like when we can bring back those histories for people and kind of educate them as to, you know, these critiques and these movements and stuff that have been around for a long time, especially in this moment where I think that people are like much more primed, to think critically about technology in the tech industry, that that is really valuable and people are really into that, whether that's looking at AI or whether that's kind of unearthing the history of Luddism for people um, so that they can see that you know what they are feeling today is not at all new and fits into things that people have been feeling and saying and doing for a very long time.
0: Absolutely. Well, anything else you guys want to share from the Luddite Tribunal before we move on to some some other stuff?
2: It was a lot of fun. And I hope more people do it. I would just say yeah,
1: it was it was a ton of fun. And and I would say I think my favorite my favorite tech being smashed no offense to, to ed of course uh, he did a great job uh in kicking us off by smashing the ring camera um but alex press smashed the printer um you know the hp printer and like started Classic off by, office like smashing-
0: space yeah yeah.
1: Started off by smashing the top of that thing, right? And then Brian Merchant like stepped in, you can see it in the video that I posted up on Twitter, and like lifted the top of it. So then you got that glass tray where you do the scanning, and then like Alex just started sending that hammer through the glass tray. There was glass going everywhere. Um but she just like <laughs> smashed the guts of that thing. And it was it was very cathartic and very nice to see. Um, yeah, it was wonderful. I think that was a real, a real highlight for me.
0: I love it because you know always when talking about Letism, and right, like I have a little parenthetical about this in my in my first book where I talk and you know in my discussion of loveism is it's always the like you know, the disclaimer of, you know, well, you know, we might not like actually smash technology, right? Like we we need to like politically smash technology just to, you know, because it makes it a bit more palatable where it's like you're not going around with a hammer actually doing it, right? But like, no, like I fucking love that people, that like this actually involved picking up a, a sledgehammer and smashing the technology. I did also see, you know, we we got we got we got to do like we got to have like a luddite workout re- uh, regiment as well because you know we're not used to the fact that these sledgehammers are are heavy. they're they're unbalanced they're top heavy right like they take some real strength to to wield and and control and uh smash with force so um you know i (laughs) I think you're a uh, gym guy
1: aren't you jason I, I am. <laughs> yeah, so you got to put together the the workout routine for us, so we can like build up our biceps and properly handle these sledgehammers.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's what I was gonna say. Is like being part of a good luddite re- requires, I think, doing some some good bicep curls. Um, make sure you've got a strong core, because that's where mm-hmm. your stability is coming in. You know. Uh, so I I, I think. You know, we, we really gotta be out there on the line, John Henry style. You know, smashing those uh, you know, hitting the Big the railroads. That's right. That's right. We can <laughs> we're going to we're going to create
1: the um, a, a new online course that uh, it was regular $99 but will be on sale for $29.99 uh, <laughs> created by both this machine kills and tech won't save us to provide you with the Luddite personal training guide so you can be ready to uh, wield your hammer and smash all the tech um, and, and give it a real proper beating.
2: We can have That's some testimonials right. from other master class alumni, such as Noam Chomsky, Henry Kissinger, <laughs> <Schuster,
3: laughs>
2: um, Hillary Clinton, um, Francis Fukuyama. Yeah, and, 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 and so you I'm need sure.
0: to, you know, you need to be like looking at a picture of John Henry every day and be like <laughs> those those are goals, you know. Listen, John
2: <laughs> Henry, John Brown Toussaint, Ned Ludd, you know, we have our little pantheon in my we have I have a little temple in my room, you know? <laughs>
1: That's oh, right. you know that you know that photo of Ned Ludd, like the the real kind of um the one that always goes around, like right where Ned Ludd is like wearing the dress and cross dressing and stuff like that. Which way I was really the- wanted to like go to a secondhand store and like find a dress to make Brian wear, but uh, again, I didn't have time. <laughs> next time,
2: these are these are great ideas for next
1: time. Yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> that particular uh, image of uh, Ned Ludd with his hand in the air, saying "Look at this bullshit." I made a sticker out of that and it says begone useless technology and I've instigated so many conversations mm-hmm. with people about luddism just on that sticker alone. I love that. People love that sticker.
0: It's so good. I will say as well, before we move off, and I I forgot about this. I need to see if I can dig up the photos, although I think they lived on my old Facebook, which has long since been deleted. Um so but but I in in college if this was uh Me and a a bunch of my friends had a break stuff party uh, where we got a sledgehammer and went to um, like secondhand stores and bought like old um, appliances and uh, some furniture and, and stuff like that. And all of us got drunk one night. And smashed a bunch of stuff in our backyard just as like a break stuff party. Um, And there is a, it was not Luddite infused. I didn't know about Luddism at the time. But I will say, even without having the explicit, you know, politics uh, of Luddism infusing it. There is nothing more cathartic and more enjoyable than just going office space on an, an <laughs> appliance, right? Whether you know you're doing it in the spirit of Luddism or just in some general spirit of, of of needing to unleash and have a cathartic, like real physical cathartic moment um, between you, a sledgehammer, and a piece of technology, like there's there's a fantastic picture i need to try to dig it up of me when i was like 20 years old just fucking sending the head of a sledgehammer all the way through the top of an old crt uh tv like a 90s <laughs> tv this sledgehammer like the fake wood um kind of casing around the the crtv and me sending the head of the sledgehammer through the top of it, and the glass oh, of the screen yeah. just fucking uh, blowing out, and and it helps that um all of my friends were photography majors, and so there were just like these. Uh, most amazing photos you've ever seen of like every party that we've ever had and and this photo i need to find it is is so fucking good it's so like it it just screams luddism now um so I, i have had some experience with a sledgehammer and technology and it is uh, it is just pure joy. It is so much fun to do, just as like a as a phys- as as like a real material act. Let alone like infusing all the politics along with it. That just adds another layer of of uh, of greatness to it.
3: We used to do the same thing too when I was a young man. Although we didn't have the money to go to secondhand stores, so we just broke each other's stuff, which I think is like more of a testimony <laughs> to like fuck technology because this isn't something that you you bought at a store just to break but also flip side of that that's why rage rooms are so popular that's why people i work with get groupons to go to a rage room to put goggles and a helmet on and go break shit because they can't do it at home and man they're so nice at work the week afterwards i think this just should be like something that comes it's like insurance you get like five free yearly like rage room visits (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I forgot that rage rooms were a thing. We need we need to open a like the Luddite room or something like that, where it's a rage room. But first, you like you have to learn about Luddism before going into the rage room, and and we handpick the technologies in the in the rage room.
1: <laughs> Come to the rage room where you need to take a class before you can special <laughs> <smash> any technology.
3: <laughs> Very appealing pitch to people. It's, it's part of the uh, the safety briefing before you go in the rage room. Yeah, that, yeah. All right, that works. You start with the whole story. But also, Jason, you should track that picture down and use that uh, as the, uh, the profile or the, uh, the author's picture in the... The back of your book, your new book. I, I was going to say that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I I okay. I need to I need to do everything I can to try to track this photo down. I I do fear that I'm um, I'm I'm extremely bad about like uh, saving and archiving photos because um, I never take photos, so I never think about like having saving them. Uh, so it it might be the case that that Facebook the, when I deleted my Facebook, that all of that stuff just got evaporated but I, w- I will do everything i can to track this photo down
1: hey, who knows you know facebook accounts i feel like they're never really gone uh, if, if you try to log in it'll probably be like hey your facebook account is actually still here
0: <laughs> i mean you are you are probably 100 percent correct <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to some other other business here. Um, you know, obviously really great to have you on the show uh to talk to you about anything Paris and, and the Luddite tribunal recapping that, but also I mean this is just fortuitous timing that you you've just kicked off a new series over at Tech Won't Save Us, your your illustrious podcast. Um and uh it's it's on Elon Musk. I know you're doing this like real this, you know, really in-depth Four part series, um, a lot of research. You know, you've been, you are on the Elon Musk beat. Um, more than anybody probably <laughs> I think more than Walter Isaacson you are on the <laughs> Elon Musk feet um, and so what uh, can you tell us about the 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 series you know you've released one episode you've got a few more in the can um, coming up what's the what's the kind of concept of the of the series on Elon Musk that you're running now
1: yeah absolutely I, I will say I'm almost done the walter isaacson biography and it's taken me this long because it's such a slog to get through that thing it's 600 odd pages and it's boring as hell and it's like repeating so many things like listen i've read pretty much all the elon musk books okay like the ones that he has been kind of like officially involved in um and or and even the ones even many of the ones where he hasn't um and like it's it's just kind of repeating a lot of like the anecdotes and stories from those old biographies, but like not really citing them very well. So <laughs> unless you were really going back and kind of knew where this stuff comes from, you probably wouldn't realize that you know a lot of this kind of historical stuff all Isaacson isn't really getting himself, but just lifting off of other people. Um, at least you know that's kind of what I feel. But anyway, um, so this series, I. I it was, it was funded by the patrons um, of the show. I kind of said in April, like, if we hit this new goal um, for funding, then I'll do an Elon Musk series. And, you know, the supporters of the show came through for me, and it was awesome. And so I decided to wait until now to do it because I wanted to wait until the Isaacson biography came out to see if there was anything like novel that would be in there that I wanted to have. And kind of the goal is, like, obviously, we've seen over the past year, Elon Musk has been much more open about his kind of conspiratorial nature and his really right-wing politics and kind of, you know, his racism and transphobia and all these sorts of things. Um, But my argument is kind of that a lot of these things are not new. And if people had been paying more kind of critical attention to him, you know, through his past and not kind of ignoring, um, you know, certain aspects of his personality because he was making cars and um, rockets and all this kind of stuff, that So, if people had been like really paying attention um, and not kind of just letting all these things go and and not like ignoring all of the negative consequences of his businesses and all the things that he was up to, then we probably could have stopped him from amassing the degree of power that he has today, um, where, you know, he has this crazy degree of control over um, rocket launches and over. internet and satellite communications infrastructure through the Starlink um, system, which just recently launched um, its own kind of military component called... um, I can't remember the exact name of the military side of it. Um, But of course, this is even as the military and many kind of Western allies of the United States have been um, concerned about the degree to which Elon Musk has control over these infrastructures and these networks. Right. Um, And so the goal of the series is kind of to, to go through Elon Musk's history and to say, this is the stuff that we know about this guy and have known for a long time. And we had the capability to say, Hey, Hey, maybe we shouldn't be praising this guy into the high heavens and putting him up on a pedestal um, and, you know, shouldn't be treating him like this. So, you know, I guess at the least it's kind of a reassessment of Elon Musk in his history and hopefully it helps to, you know, have more people realize that this is not someone who we should be putting um, our faith in.
0: Yeah, I mean, that talk about another, you know, we were talking about the, the radical kind of Public shift in perspectives of things like ludism, and and I think as well, like you know, Elon Musk is definitely someone who has undergone a, a radical shift in public perception over the last few years. I mean, I I you know I work in a faculty of information technology. Um, you know, it's a lot of computer scientists. You know, human computer interaction scholars. There's a you know there's a department of data science and artificial intelligence in my faculty and stuff. So. It's like normally, you know, this would be the kind of people who would, you know, who would in the past have been all aboard the, the Elon train. And, and to be sure, there's still a lot of people who are, you know, all aboard or tepidly supporting. Um, but it is also the case that, like, I talk to people in my faculty and you don't even have to make the argument anymore that Elon Musk is like a charlatan is, you know, uh, dangerous um, and does not deserve to have his position. Um, Like, you know, Th- this is just kind of assumed to be true um, even amongst a lot of people in the faculty of uh, IT where I work like that and I, I feel like that's a like that's a radical shift in, in, in perception um, to for to be able to say that kind of thing and not have to like make a case for it you know just kind of be like, well, it sure is clear over the last few years that you know that uh, 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 musk is, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, dangerous, he's a charlatan, all of that kind of stuff. Like, I don't know, but at the same, at the same time, um, and I think this is where like, you know, it, it's good that we have this public perception is good that we have more critical takes that like things like, you know, a Walter Isaacson, uh, hagiography will not just kind of get passed through without people kind of, you know, actually you know, picking it apart in, in the media. Or friend of the
2: show, Keir sure. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well,
0: or, you know, friend of the show, Quinn Slobodian, who wrote a, a, a great, um, you know, piece in the New Statesman, actually tearing apart the biography and, and all of that. Right. And like, you know, it was, again, it wasn't that long ago. You know, you think about the last one, what was a Steve Jobs um, that like, that was kind of just widely accepted as, you know, other than like Evgeny Morozov's, you know, 10,000 were a takedown in the New Republic. Like that was a, that was fringe, right? That was an anomaly. Otherwise everybody was just like, yeah, no, this, 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 uh, nails it that, you know, Steve Jobs is a, Uh, a world historic genius and one of the greatest to ever do it you know that has certainly not been the reaction and reception to the elon musk biography that i that i feel like isaacson was expecting because that's his whole that's his whole business is writing these like great men of history hagiographies and he carefully chooses his subjects So that they are kind of already widely seen as great men of history, which means he doesn't have to do as much work to make that case and i think in the time period of him writing the book um and, and i'm sure securing a seven figure book deal for it or whatever like in the con in the time period between him securing that deal and writing it and it being released uh there has just been a complete 180 uh on on public perception but at the same time i feel like musk has become this like too big to fail institution in a lot of ways where it's like is bad press enough to to take down somebody who is so is so adamant and has so much power but also has you know as as you know we've talked about on the show in regards to like the reporting on Starlink has really like established himself as this like key uh infrastructure provider to militaries and governments right like in addition to all the other stuff around you know Tesla or X or space, you know, whatever it might be. Like, I don't know. What do you think to that? Um, I did it like, you know, the public perception has has drastically soured, but has he become this like too big to fail institution of a person?
1: Yeah, I definitely think so, and you know, I'm certainly not claiming that my little series is gonna like uh, make it so that he's not that anymore. Um, unfortunately, though, how, I would how dare love you,
0: that. Uh, Paris, put out a podcast series that does not succeed in tearing down and destroying <laughs> 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 an extremely powerful and wealthy? <laughs> no, no, I think I'm, I don't think anyone expects uh, that that to be to be the case.
1: I, I wish I had that kind of power and influence and and to be sure i
0: wasn't saying that like it's useless that that stuff is not important i think it obviously is um but yeah i don't know like could what yeah so i get on this idea of him being a too big to fail institution like what's the kind of politics of that but what's also the 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 consequences and, and responses to that
1: yeah, it's massive, right? Um, and and I think you're absolutely right. Like I think he has become this kind of too big to fail institution, in part because you know, like this is kind of my argument is that because we had all this boosterish coverage of him for so long, he was able to get away with so much that should have been kind of addressed or taken into account far earlier in his rise that may have headed off where he is today and the power that he holds today. But we were so unwilling to do that. You know, we is probably the the wrong word to use there, but you know the media or a lot of people in the media and political figures were unwilling to do that um, because they saw benefits in you know kind of being uh, being within that aura, right? Having their connections to Elon Musk, getting their clips, clicks, and their page views, trying to. Trying to like get some of the um, the benefits of kind of the popularity that he had from a political level, right? By kind of rubbing shoulders with him, or trying to get some kind of Tesla or SpaceX project in their jurisdictions. If you think about political figures, um, and so that ensured that you know whenever he broke the rules, he, he at most got like a slap on the wrist if it wasn't ignored altogether. Um, and just on the Starlink thing, like you know, we've talked about a lot of it. They posted a page on their website the other day saying that Starlink plans to start offering cell phone service. And like, I think that this is just something that should be outright opposed. Like, this should be made illegal because it, it's centralizing so much power, right? If you have this global network, and now you're challenging all these national national telecommunications and cell phone providers, and I know that this is something that the telecom companies have been worried about. Um, that like the amount of power he would have then is just incredibly enormous if you don't think it's already huge right um and and I think that one of the arguments that I often make is that you know he puts out these really kind of glowing narratives these really kind of positive and attractive narratives like you know SpaceX is going to take us to Mars or he's going to save the world from climate change with Tesla cars or whatever even and and like there's never I don't think there's ever really um, a path to achieving a lot of those things but the goal is to say okay, people see I'm doing this like big ambitious project. So they'll kind of cut me some slack and now I can build a business model that is incredibly like exploitative or that has a ton of negative externalities. um, And those get ignored because people think I'm actually trying to like have this kind of massive global scale impact. Um, And I think I would say that, you know, the risk of him being too big to fail is in part because, you know, he controls key sectors of the economy, um, whether it is, Rocket launch capabilities in the United States and and you know many Western countries because a lot of people depend on this stuff. A lot of people have shifted. They used to use the Russian rockets and have shifted to SpaceX because SpaceX is l- a lower cost provider, um, is quite dependable now because they have done so much of this work with with various governments and companies. Um, obviously, you have the Starlink piece of things. Even if you look at Tesla and and some people kind of downplay this, but Elon Musk. It, through Tesla, owns um, the most reliable electric vehicle charging infrastructure in the United States and many other parts of the world, right? Um, and so y- what you have is not just that Tesla has access to these things, but in recent months, we've seen a lot of other North American and Europe European automakers announcing that they are changing their cars from the common open standard of charging to the uh, closed tesla standard um because they want access to the supercharger network and kind of the other charging initiatives to, to build out alternative networks are not working out as well um, because there's not kind of a clear um you know push to to make that happen um and so i think that that's incredibly worrying as well right if you think about how the the auto market works right now for fossil fuel vehicles you have all of these like gas um, and diesel kind of stations that are owned by a bunch of different companies where you can go and fuel up that are not owned by the automakers but now you have this automaker um, who also owns the charging infrastructure who also doesn't have dealership network but sells the cars themselves like i think that there's a lot to be worried about in there and then you think about the environmental impacts and all those other things but the other piece with elon musk is that It's not just kind of the political economy of the kind of businesses and the empire that he owns. It's also like, you know, through having these companies and through having this ideology and through having this power and the wealth that he has, what is he ultimately trying to do with that, right? And I think you can see increasingly... He's not just embracing this kind of these kind of right wing narratives and and these kind of this kind of conspiratorial thinking, but he does have like a vision of what the future should be, where you know we need to be this multi planetary species, we need to be going out into space, we need to be like achieving certain things that he thinks are important. You know, smart people quote unquote need to have more babies and all this kind of stuff. And I think that there's a really kind of concerning future that he is trying to achieve and that he is trying to like force the rest of society. Society to go after um, that, we really need to be thinking much more critically about because I don't think it's actually in service of the majority of the public. Um, and that if we do allow his influence to kind of shape um, the policy kind of approaches of governments in trying to also achieve his goals and his vision for what this future should be, I think that we're headed down a very dark path. Um, but we won't necessarily realize that, you know. F- for a while after we've started kind of heading in that direction which then also makes it harder to kind of reverse on that
0: yeah i, I was really glad you brought up what i think you know is the the real source of, of of his power and the persistence of his power and wealth is that that monopolistic control over infrastructure right and it's it's you know infrastructure is it's it's not sexy right it's like it's boring it's you know if it works well it's invisible and so you don't notice it um, it's often kind of you know really technical and complex like you know it, it's not the kind of thing that like you build a reputation around being you know a, an infrastructure uh, baron or or, or or provider or whatever right like so you don't hear about that you know the innovations are always things that are like you know that that elon musk kind of builds his reputation around are you know things that are much more exciting you know electric uh, autonomous electric vehicles or you know low earth orbit satellites and ooh, rocket launches right like you know all, all things that are like also <laughs> designed to be legible to like the interest of children if i'm being really honest here you know Well, he is quite childish, so yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but it works really well because, again, it's like, you know, people can kind of intuitively understand that, like, that's that's innovation, that's coded as, like, genius, brilliant inventor, you know, making the future, whatever, but... When you drill down into like the actual source of, of his power and wealth, I think you're exactly right. It's not the Tesla cars, it's the Tesla charging infrastructure, right? It's it's not the rocket launches, it's the control over logistics of you know, space. It's not the satellites, it's control over telecommunication networks, right? Like it's infrastructure and logistics. Um, and that's what Twitter is as well, right? Like Twitter is a communication infrastructure and a really, you know, uh, an overly important one, um, considering its size because of the people who use it, you know, politicians, media, you know, academics and so on. That is the real key here. And, and infrastructural power has a few, you know, com- it comes from and it does a few different things that I think you know, we really have to grapple with, right? Like, you know, I know we've all, you know, referred to at various points, you know, Elon Musk is just a glorified military contractor, you know, and that's, that's what he is in large parts. Um, and, and, and that is certainly the case with the infrastructure, right? Like it's a, you know, you're a service provider, a vendor, you're selling that service to people who can afford to pay for it. And that's going to, be governments and militaries and so you're you're largely subsisting on these massive contracts with government and military but that also only comes about because uh the the public uh investment and ownership of these you know core infrastructural uh, networks and services has been ceded to the private sector right and 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 you allow somebody to step in and if they have the uh you know if they have the ambition and if they have the you know the if uh, the lack of of shame uh required to you know bully their way in take over you know do everything you know a, a real like um do anything it takes to get to the top kind of mentality um, then you know you can only have you can only monopolize or start building a monopoly for electric vehicle charging on an, on a proprietary standard for example, if somebody lets you do that right if the government lets you do that um, if if automakers let you do that you know if they seed, that infrastructure to you and that's the same exact thing that like with starlink right you can only do that if uh and and this and with spacex with the rocket launches like you can only do the kind of satellites and communication networks and rocket launches and logistics if the public sector seeds that to the to the private sector right and so like uh, like this, this this uh, this power and wealth that he has is infrastructural power and wealth and and that comes from not innovation, not uh, you know uh, genius, you know being a com- you know the best competitor in the marketplace or whatever it comes from people seeding ground and allowing you to take over those things. Um, and similarly as well, I think that a really key thing around infrastructural power is that it's like it's very, Concrete and it persists. Um, I'm almost done reading Corey Doctorow's latest book, The Internet Con, um, and we got Corey coming on next week to to talk about it. But in that, he he describes like that the the way that infrastructure and standards cast long shadows. You know that that they are really material politics and like the truest sense of like they are these concrete, obdurate things that once you once you establish infrastructure once you establish standards um and once the once that becomes the the kind of dominant mode then it it persists forever because people organize all of their own activities and lives and business and so on around that infrastructure and around that standard um and so it It's why, you know, we talk about like the railroad barons, right? Like they became so large and powerful because they had control over infrastructure that other people needed to do other stuff, like to do really socially useful stuff, to do not socially useful stuff, but you know, whatever it might be, right? Um, Corey has this great story in the, um, uh, in, in his book. And I had no idea talking about the kind of long shadow of, of infrastructure. Corey has this great story in his book Um, where he writes, Infrastructure choices cast a long shadow. Take roads. The width of the Roman roads was the width of the wheelbase of Roman chariots, itself a function of the state of the art of Roman metallurgy, which determined the maximum length of a stable axle. The chariot roads became cart roads, and the cart roads became motor vehicle roads. Long after we had the ability to extend the wheelbase of a motor vehicle beyond the limits of Roman metal beating, we were locked into roads that could have been served by blacksmiths of the uh, classical age. Corey goes on to talk about that the width of the road determined the width of train containers because of intermodal transport where freight containers are moved from flat rail cars to flatbed trucks, right? So you need train freight containers and shipping containers that can fit on flatbed trucks. And so you're limited to the size of roads. Um, and, And thus, that goes on and on, right? That like this this long shadow of choices made in the Roman age go on to things, for example, um, the size of space shuttles, right? And so the design for a space shuttle um, called for the creation of reusable solid rocket boosters, you know, these massive cone-tipped cylinders that would lift the shuttle before falling away and floating to the ground on parachutes. Well, those uh, reusable rocket boosters were built in Brigham County, Utah, and then shipped to Florida for takeoff. They were shipped on trains. And so after, uh, so the the boosters are about 150 feet long, but they had to be precisely 12.17 feet in the diameter because they had to fit on special railway cars for overland ch- shipment, right? And so uh, Corey you know, ends this by saying the aerospace engineers who sat down to design those solid rocket boosters had a lot of parameters to juggle the pool of gravity, the efficiency of rocket fuel, the weight of the payload, but mixed in with those parameters, immutable and inarguable was the width of a rail car, which was foreordained by the width of the Roman chariot wheelbase, which was in turn determined by the metal-beating know-how of Roman blacksmiths. Infrastructure cast alongshore. Shadow. If you spend any time in what's now called infrastructure studies, right—the kind of social studies of uh, of infrastructure um, and the the social sciences and history of it—you'll you'll know that that one example that Corey tells is just one example. It's not an anomaly. It's not a little hey, that's a weird oddity. It is the norm. Like that is the long shadow cast by infrastructure and. But we don't think uh, as well around like how decisions made today might affect uh, decisions made hundreds or thousands of years in the future, um, and and thus I think it also plays into that too big to fail. Like how could somebody monopolize not just one type of infrastructure, but so many different types of infrastructures, logistics and communication networks, and so on. And it's because you don't think about the we don't think about how that decision to allow that to happen um, to let that pers- that particular person do it in these particular ways are not just immediate choices. They are choices that because they are infrastructural, they are designed. Uh, and have a tendency to persist long into the future right and so you know if we if we follow the kind of the the systems chain of decisions made around you know low earth orbit satellites, for example. And we we talked about this a little bit in our Starlink episode. I know you know a lot more about this um, because you follow it a lot closer, Paris. But if we just think about even decisions made about like, you know, the 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 launching of low earth orbit satellites. Like that's quite literally locking us into decisions now that will persist for decades Or hundreds or even thousands of years into the future. That's just one aspect, right? If we think about decisions made around, um, the proprietary standard for electric vehicle charging, um, if that becomes the monopoly, if that becomes the kind of the infrastructure, uh, then that is, you know, those are also decisions that are locking us into, um, not only things now, but potentially locking us into parameters that have to be taken into account when making uh, innovations uh, decades or hundreds of years into the future. Just as the width of the uh, of of the road um, locked us into a particular parameter that has to be taken into account when designing a
1: space shuttle a thousand years in the future. Yeah, I I have a copy of Corey's book. Um, I haven't read it yet because I've been like. Uh, absorbing an ungodly amount of Elon Musk content uh, for the past month to fill out this series, you know, reading these biographies and and some of these books over going back and like reading articles about him from ages ago, uh, watching interviews that he gave like over the past several decades, like just trying to pick out these different kind of clips. But I think on the infrastructural PowerPoint, like I think just going back to what you were saying, I think the key is always to remember that, this was a choice to allow this man to control as much infrastructure as he does and to accumulate the power that he has um, because the state, um, you know, kind of abdicated its responsibility to build and control some of these infrastructures itself, you know, as a result of kind of neoliberalism and this kind of view that the private sector should be controlling more and more of the economy and society and all this kind of stuff. And so as you're, you know, moving into new technologies and things like that, the state is not there to kind of, you know, play the role that it might have played in the past. Um, and so it just kind of allows the private companies to do whatever they want. Um, and then the other piece of that is that they they actively fund um, his monopolistic behavior and and his desire to control all of this, right? Um Like SpaceX only survives because it gets a massive NASA contract, right? When you go back to the early Falcon days when he's trying to get this off the ground. Um, And, you know, this happens kind of throughout the history of SpaceX and Tesla, where they get key kind of infusions of public money. Um, whether that's kind of around two thousand eight, two thousand nine, in the the bailouts, but it's a loan, so it's not a bailout. So it's you know Tesla wasn't bailed out, um, and also you know the kind of the the um, carbon credit scheme in California that gave Tesla effectively billions of dollars and actually gave it double the credits that it should have received because it demoed battery swapping one time, and as a result, that meant that the number of credits it received per vehicle was almost doubled um, for many years even though it was not battery swapping anything um, it had just demoed it once Um, and then of course you know defense department um, NASA FTC contracts and and subsidies and things like that for SpaceX and one of the things that's important to understand there I think is that when we look at these uh, kind of companies and and, you know what Elon Musk has been up to it, it does pursue kind of a similar model that we see within Silicon Valley where it's losing a ton of money in order to build this monopoly. Um, Tesla did claim that it was making money for a long time, but most of the money it was making was from the carbon credits, not from selling cars. That has only happened quite recently. Um, Whereas SpaceX, SpaceX is still a private company, right? We don't have real financials from that company because it doesn't have to be reported because it's not publicly traded on the stock market. Um, and recent reports that I have have read suggest that um, SpaceX is still losing money. It's not a profitable company. Um, and so w- you know when it says that its launches are so much cheaper than everyone else and stuff like that, part of that is because it's not actually making money on any of this stuff and it's offering it at below cost. So, yeah, you know, just I think things to keep in mind when you think about the infrastructural power that he has and the way that he's able to deploy his wealth and also how the state is a very key part of allowing him to become who he is today. And even when we see these reports about the concerns that, um, you know, the Pentagon, that other parts of the U.S. government and and foreign governments have about the power that Elon Musk um You know, wields. um, They're still giving him more public money to keep building these things out.
2: Uh, With with Elon Musk, I think also, and and you know, the empire he's building. You know, I would also be curious what your thought. You know, I think like a lot of the commentary kind of has this assumption that he is more or less building things. Trying to expand things, taking advantage of holes in uh, state infrastructure and bureaucracy, largely to enrich himself, right? Or to accrue more geopolitical power um, than he currently has to further enrich himself and to just gain more influence and power and you know this kind of also dovetails with larger debates that are kind of happening in leftist circles about what is the proper way to actually think about and understand technology and whether feudalism is a useful metaphor whether capitalism properly applies to tech capitalists and whether they are just simply pursuing profit and maximizing profit or if there are other initiatives in play and i'm wondering when you look at Elon Musk and as you've been doing research on this series you get the sense that there are larger kind of um Imperatives and operatives at play here at the end of the day falls largely down to traditional capitalist um, dynamics and then some mixing of his interpersonal um, experiences, baggage um, and desires, you know, like, is there a larger, grander vision doesn't have to be the glitzy one that Swisher and Galloway and all these other, you know, stenographers insist Elon Musk has, right? But do you, do you get the sense that he does have some larger plan in play? That he does have a sort of political economy he wants to pursue? That he does have a real vision beyond? Or maybe part of the bullshit that he spews to the public, about wanting humanity to live on Mars, about wanting us to all have the best possible utopian lives in the dystopia, about you know, seeding humanity throughout the stars, Or is it just at the end of the like even more of an empty vision because it's just capitalist dynamics?
1: Well, I think it is quite empty, but I I think it's a mix of both of the things that you're talking about there, right? Like, I think that in his worldview, um, he certainly does believe that we should be trying to realize the things that he read about in science fiction novels as a child and a teenager. That is very clear to me. Um, And you know, that has been kind of deeply influential in how he sees the world and how he sees the companies that he's leading and the projects that he is trying to um, pursue. There's there's kind of one um, anecdote in the Walter Isaacson book where he's looking at the cyber truck and one of his sons, uh, younger sons, says, why doesn't the future look like the future? And this is kind of like then a motto that he keeps repeating to everybody. Um, and his what he means by that is why you know, does the president, why does what we're we're building for like the near future not look like what I saw in science fiction movies like Blade Runner and stuff like that? And so that is part of the reason why the Cybertruck looks so fucking ridiculous, right? Um, And because he's just like this weird infantile man um, who happens to have all this power um, and and wealth. And and another of the things that really stands out in the, the Isaacson biography too is just how like deeply unhappy and like socially stunted he is um in that there are like multiple stories throughout this book where there's supposed to be like some sort of an event like a birthday party or like a thanksgiving dinner or something like that and elon musk is might even be there or like nearby but he like retreats into a room and plays video games or makes up some reason that he needs to like fly back to la or something to go do work um because he just like I don't know, he creates these crises for himself constantly to feel like he needs to be at something. Um, like, I think that there's something deeply wrong with this man that we have, you know, that because of the booster ish coverage, you know, a lot of people have kind of ignored, but, you know, so there's that kind of grander vision where he wants to put us on Mars and he wants to be all the electric cars and all that kind of shit. But, um, Ultimately, because we do live in a capitalist system, even though these are kind of the big dreams that he has, um, you see that you know, capitalist imperatives ultimately shape how the businesses work, they do need to have a business model at the end of the day. Um, And he has to think about how he makes these things work in capital markets as they operate right now. Um, And that's part of the reason why, you know, Tesla initially has a vision of kind of like building the expensive car, and then the cheaper car, and then the slightly cheaper car beyond that, and the cheaper one again, right. And that doesn't work out because Elon Musk is like, He just makes such terrible decisions in terms of how the cars are designed, and the parts that go into them, and the features that are into them. And even though his designers are constantly saying, like, actually, we shouldn't be adding this, because it's going to make it so much more expensive and harder to build. And he's like, no, but it needs to look cool. Um, And then, like, you have all these quality control issues that come of it. Um, And so that is what kind of forces him eventually to have to start making these grand promises around self driving and all this other stuff that the company is going to achieve, to drive the share price up, so that the company has Enough money and in investment so it can keep actually delivering on like the fundamentals of um, the car company itself because otherwise it would have gone under a long time ago because these cars um, are not as efficient or as a cheap to produce as they're always like envisioned to be because Elon Musk gets involved. Um, and then if you look at the, the kind of SpaceX stuff. Like certainly, he has that vision of um, you know getting us to Mars and whatnot. But in the process, he is monopolizing um, rocket launch capabilities in the United States. He's monopolizing kind of um, satellite internet uh, infrastructures and communications. Um, and really, he sees, or, or at least you know what he says is, he sees these things as you know trying to create a business model where the company can be, you know, kind of self-sufficient enough so that it can later pursue, like, the Mars dreams, right? Um, but ultimately, how he's approaching these things are being shaped by the capitalist pressures that he's under, um, and that has very real impacts for how these things are built, who it serves, and and you know what ultimately comes of him comes of them, right? Like the final thing I would say on that is that sure he's pursuing all these projects, but because he feels that he is doing them in service of this much grander like vision and future and whatnot. Anything is acceptable, kind of in the achievement of that, right? Um, He can abuse workers as much as he wants, um, you know, and underpay them and fight their unions. He can damage environmental. reserves like in the case of SpaceX or create a ton of air pollution and things like that in the case of Tesla like there are a lot of downsides to these companies that are often that that do not receive the attention they deserve because it goes against the narrative of who Elon Musk is in the future that he's building but you see this constantly where he really does not mind creating these constant negative externalities because the justification is that he's gonna like improve the future of humanity and blah, blah, blah.
0: That that definitely plays into the extreme sociopathic uh, principles of things like long-termism and uh, effective altruism and- the latest offshoot of this around effective accelerationism, um, which is the the new kind of cult that's just fully leaning into the, uh, the, the capitalist excellency um, of it all. But yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what like draw. Sadly,
1: I've read about that one
3: too.
0: That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly what draws people like uh, Musk into you like saying that like long-termism is my philosophy you know saying so, you know with the the what do we owe the future book and being like this is basically what i believe um is that like it is a moral justification for um sociopathy uh and uh and any end or any means justify the ends mentality, mentality. And- ended in a way by saying I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to see this like radical shift in perspective you know people coming in on Luddism people souring on people like Musk um, and it is interesting though to see so many of the stenographers of power um, kind of getting caught like in whiplash around this with, you know, the Walter Isaacson book, but also the Michael Lewis going infinite um, book that like, you know, has been getting rightfully so just fucking pilloried in the media um, as this like completely naive and idiotic, uh, kind of hagiography um, of, 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 a, of an obvious uh, idiot who just Michael Lewis completely got, like, sucked into, right? Like, it's just so interesting to see these, like, you know, big-time famous authors with their million-dollar book contracts, um, you know, putting out yet another uh, book a book like the like the kind they've been putting out for a very long time about the topics and people they've been putting out for a very long time um, and to see the reactions to them be so completely different than what they expect like I do think it speaks to a much broader, kind of shift in public perception and that like the people who were held up as heroes, not that long ago are um, very quickly recognized and realized as, as villains all along. Right. It's like Scooby-Doo tearing off the mask and and realizing that the, the, the geniuses were actually idiots and the heroes were villains the whole time.
1: (laughs) I do love me some (laughs) (laughs) Scooby-Doo.
0: Well, Paris, always a joy to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Um, I'm, 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 I'm jealous about the Luddite Tribunal, but it's, uh, I, f- I feel a little bit assuaged by being, by getting a, a real kind of secondhand experience with it. Um, and also, uh, yeah, I mean, people, people should know where to find you at tech won't save us. Uh, you've got the excellent Elon Musk series kind of unfolding right now. You've got one episode out as of recording with a few more left to go. Um, so people should, you know, subscribe over at the podcast over at the patreon um and support your your show which i i i do not think that tmk i've said this before i don't think tmk would exist if it wasn't for tech won't save us um, because very early in the run before tmk long, you know, existed you had ed and i both on separately um and that was a uh, uh, a, a kind of an inch, you know, it was almost like this trial run where um, Ed and I both got to hear what the other sounded like on a podcast and be like, all right, yeah, I think, I think I can, I think I could do something with this guy. <laughs> so um, <laughs> all, always, you know, one, one of the godfathers of TMK, uh, Paris
1: i love it thank you so much and you know it's always a pleasure to, to come ch- chat with you guys and you know to see the work that you're doing in kind of you know forwarding these like critical and luddite perspectives um yeah always a pleasure
0: absolutely well and everybody else can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week and until next time
2: later adios, adios.